So Money episode 284, Nigel Barker. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Well, ahead of introducing today's wonderful guest, I have to quickly share with you the charity fundraiser and competition that's going to be going on all month here at So Money, the entire month of November, in tandem with a charity fundraiser forward slash competition going on with Joe Saul Sihai's podcast, Stacking Benjamins. And to tell us all about that, I brought on Joe. And Joe, here you go. What, take the mic. You, you invited me onto this little fundraiser of yours, and I'm I'm excited, but also a little nervous. Farnoosh, I'm way excited that we're doing this together. You know, uh, we can raise a bunch of money for charity. And I love this at the end of the year with Thanksgiving. For people in the United States, we end the month of November with uh, Thanksgiving. And I thought, what a great way for our community to help another community that might need it. So we are going to be raising money for the Texas 4000, which is a 4,000 mile bike ride that University of Texas students take to raise money for cancer research and, and cancer-related causes. Uh, I know that they give a lot of money to MD Anderson Hospital, one of the premier uh, cancer treatment clinics in the United States in Houston, Texas. And then they also give it to worthwhile uh, research facilities around the nation. So we're going to be raising money at, at, at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas 4000. And it's cool because our organization, Farnoosh, has a lot in terms of where the money goes, a lot in common with who you're raising money yes. for. Talk about that for a minute. Well, thank you. That was a nice transition. So I have chosen, our team here at So Money has chosen the largest student-run philanthropy in the world, near and dear to my heart as well, because I was a part of this when I was in college. It's the Penn State IFC Panhellenic Dance Marathon. It's affectionately known as THON, and it's a year-long effort to raise money and awareness for the fight against pediatric cancers. It's raised over $125 million for the Four Diamonds Fund at Penn State Hershey Children's Hospital. And next year's THON 2016 is what we are fundraising for now. And that will be taking place February 19th through the 21st. It's a 46-hour dance marathon. I did it and I survived. It was uh, life-altering. But of course, it's for an amazing, tremendous and important cause. Thon.org forward slash so money. Thon.org forward slash so money is where you can go to contribute. I know it's high season for canning. And this is a way to join in on the fun. Anything you can do, know that it will be well spent. Over 95% of funds go to the families. That's so great. And the rider that we're riding for, uh, who's riding in the Texas 4000, her name is Shelby Schreiber. Her father was a single dad raising her Farnoosh. And when she was in high school, he started feeling bad, went to the doctor. It turned out he had terminal cancer and he passed away when she was just in high school. Hmm. So here she is without a dad. And now she decided she's going to ride this 4,000 mile bike ride in honor of him. And they spend no money on the bike ride. Uh, all the food along the way, all the housing along the way is donated. So I love these organizations, yeah. but stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas four zero zero zero. And, and I hope together we can raise a lot of money. I think we will. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. 
Well, today's guest is an internationally renowned photographer rubbing shoulders with some of the world's top models. In fact, he is a judge on the popular TV show America's Next Top Model that just announced it's going to be ending after 12 years and 22 seasons. Nigel Barker is here. He's been with the show for a whopping 17 seasons, and he also hosts Oxygen Network's modeling competition series with Naomi Campbell called The Face. Nigel is highly revered in the fashion and entertainment industry, which has led him to many exciting opportunities, including his own show on VH1 called The Shot, as well as producing films, documentaries, and commercials for a variety of people from Hollywood clients to charitable organizations. Most recently, Nigel was awarded the Film Heals Award for Humanitarianism at the 6th Annual Manhattan Film Festival for Dreams Are Not Forgotten. With over 20 years of experience in the fashion industry, he's authored several books, most recently a New York Times bestseller titled Models of Influence, 50 Women Who Reset the Course of Fashion. Lots of interesting nuggets from our interview, including how Nigel transitioned from his goals of pursuing medicine to the world of fashion, how compartmentalizing enhances his financial life, and Nigel's big failure that literally overnight turned into major success. Here is Nigel Barker. Nigel Barker, welcome to So Money. I'm such a fan and I'm so sad America's Next Top Model is going away, but glad to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, you know, all good things come to an end, but they don't always die. They just change and they morph and the spirit lives on. So I think America's Next Top Model did to fashion it was just the beginning. And we, as we've seen, the proliferation of fashion on television throughout the Internet, you know, it's only the beginning and we're excited for what's next. Very excited for what's next for you. Tell us about how the show has really, I mean, it was such a big part of your life, so many years of your life. And now what is next? What's on tap for you? Well, you know, you're right. I did 17 seasons of America's Next Top Model. You know, at one point we were the number one show on primetime on a Wednesday, which was wonderful, getting into everyone's houses and talking to them about fashion and style and, and what have you. And, you know, that created a brand, certainly for myself. Uh, in the photography space, uh, talking about fashion style design and obviously taking pictures and all that kind of thing. And, you know, and what happened around me, you know, the, the whole business changed dramatically. When we first started America's Next Top Model, you know, it was very much a TV show, uh, no doubt enjoyed by many people in the industry, but also by many and, and more and more people as the show went on who weren't in, in fashion, but wanted to be who were terribly excited by what fashion meant and the industry that which had pretty much had closed doors for eternity it was finally opening its doors. But that also meant that people in fashion weren't that keen on the show. They didn't like their doors being opened. They didn't like the, the curtain being, you know, pullbacks to reveal what was going on in the fashion world. And many in the fashion business said, hey, what you guys are doing isn't real. It's too over the top and what have you. And, you know, if you looked at our magazine sponsors, we started with magazines like Seventeen and our major sponsor was people like Walmart and Kmart and various other stores. And, you know, which was wonderful. And they started the show and they trusted in us and they believed in us. But it was interesting to see where the show went. And, you know, what, 17 seasons down the line, my fellow judges were people like Twiggy and Andre Leon Talia from American, you know, from American Vogue. You know, you can't get better credentials than that. Also, our magazine sponsors were Italian Vogue, um, you know, which was arguably 
editorially one of the best vogues in the world. Uh, so we went from being sort of out of vogue to in vogue, and and the industry and the world changed around us. So you know, with that brand, I I've really done everything since then that I, I've I, that I've wanted to within photography world, but also outside of it. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to write books. I've been lucky enough to create my own shows. You know, The Shot, which was on VH1, which was all about photographers competing, was one of them. And I'm working on several others right now. And um, and doing, you know, license deals in, in spaces and areas where one wouldn't have perhaps thought a fashion photographer would be. But I think, you know, especially in America, the world's your oyster. And you know, one of the reasons why I love working in the United States is because if you can dream it, you can make it come. You can make it real you know, if you believe in yourself. And I, I'm certainly one to, to, to not say no to my own mm-hmm. opportunity. I read, Nigel, that you initially wanted to study medicine. Is that right? Well, it, it's right that I I was going to study medicine. So. You were going to study medicine. So how did this transition happen? Um, because talk about two very different worlds, medicine, um, and then you have the world of fashion. So what was the bridge for you? Or what was the, 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 the shift? Well, you know, to be honest, you know, when you're at school, certainly when I, when I was a child, you know, I mean, it's very different now because of the way things have changed in, in the world and how things like fashion and photography are exciting, you know, career opportunities now. They weren't in the same way when I was a child. And, you know, um, when I was studying at school, if you were good at biology, chemistry, physics and math, and I was pretty good, then, you know, you became a doctor or you became uh, you worked in the sciences or you did that, that sort of you were pushed into that kind of world. And, you know, I, I come from a, a family that's my mother is from Sri Lanka and uh, my father is English and Irish and, you know, and they wanted me to go on to have a proper profession. You know, they had a, a lawyer and an accountant and a financial advisor already in the family. So why not a doctor? So um, I, you know, accepted the, the the position and thought, okay, that's what I'll do. It had nothing to do with the fact that I wanted to necessarily heal people or I was particularly had a good bedside manner or any of that kind of stuff. It was rather just academic. So, you know, my own passion, you know, on the side when I was at school, I would go and do classes on sewing and um, fashion design and pattern cutting, tailoring, weaving. And I remember my father saying, what on earth are you doing this for? That, you know, you're the only boy in a, cl- in a class of 22 girls doing it. You know, this, why are you wasting your time? And I said, well, dad, you know, when I become a plastic surgeon, I'll be the, you know, have all this training on how to stitch up my patients because I'll, I'll learn all these fancy stitching techniques. And, and he laughed and he said, oh, you're quite right. A good idea. I didn't think of it like that. When secretly... I was doing it because I was always interested in it. I was fascinated in fashion. And, and also I told my friends, I'm like, listen, guys, I'm the only guy in a class of 22 girls. I'm the only one with a date at the end of the week. Right. It was kind of like me majoring in finance where there are very few women. At, what, would you say that was maybe a conscious strategy of yours? Like, I want to do something that I'm going to really stand out. And now maybe it wasn't that you knew you <laughs> definitely want to be the only male, but that that was definitely an advantage for you, whether you were conscious about it or not. You know, I've always gone after things that I wanted to do. I, I you know, I, I like to say I'm compassionate to myself. You know, I, I feel that all, all too often we struggle at doing things that other people want us to do and, um, and we don't necessarily excel. And if you're happy, you'll excel. And, and you know, sometimes people think that, oh, well, financially, that's not going to be you know, very rewarding. But 
I, I like to think that many things can be financially rewarding, but more to the point, if you love something, you're, you're able to be passionate about it. You're almost always able to be successful at it. Rather, when if you're not and you don't love it, you can struggle on. You might make a living and what have you, but you're unlikely to be brilliant at it or become particularly successful unless you really have that passion. And that's really true for almost every job and any kind of thing. So, you know, I enjoyed that. I went for it. And of course, it was my mother who, bless her heart, because I think, she, you know, at the time she must have thought to myself, did I do this? But she put me up for this modeling competition in 1989 um, called The Clothes Show on English BBC. And I didn't win, but I got on the show. It was a televised TV show, a model search, one of the very first ever. And it was somewhat ironic that I then became on America's Next Top Model, a judge, from doing a full 180 for where I started. But, um, you know, that's what led me into the world of modeling. And uh, I took a, you know, a year or two off before going to medical school. And what happened was is that one year, you know, I was successful. Two years, I was successful. Three years, my parents were like, okay, you've got to go back to school now. And I said, well, actually, I don't want to, and nor do I need to, because I've made enough money to be able to do my own thing. So I, you know, took the sort of slightly outlandish position of saying no and, you know, leading my own life. And I went to live in Italy and lived in Paris. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. That's really bold, especially, I think, with parents and a family that was where education was so important in academia, it sounds, and having a really kind of safe profession was really respected. What do they think now of your career? I have to say, Nigel, you're not just a photographer and a, a TV guy. You're an entrepreneur, right? I mean, really what you are doing is, I don't know, if, even if you, I suspect if you were not even a photographer, whatever you're doing, it would have some sort of element of of entrepreneurship, would you say? That's kind of in your DNA, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love taking a bit of a gamble. Um, however, it's always uh, you know, something that I'm passionate about or understand to some extent. I, I rarely take a risk on something that I have no interest in. So, you know, when it came to myself and my, and my career and, and what I wanted to do, I knew I was happy, which I think is, you know, a truly wealthy man or wealthy person rather is someone who's happy first and foremost. Um, and that I was, and, and, you know, growing up as a young boy in England in the seventies, and I was half Sri Lankan and half English kind of thing. That was a difficult position to be in. I, you know, not that I had an identity crisis, but you know, I was neither English nor Sri Lankan and you know, the Sri Lankan community was pretty close knit. The English community was pretty close knit. And I grew up being asked constantly where I was from. So I never really fit in. So for me, of course, now mixed blood children is very common and, and beautiful and you see them everywhere. But, but uh, you know, there weren't that many when I was a kid in the 70s It's in London. And, you know, we had communities of, of, of you know, the Arab community, the uh, African community, the Indian community, but they've stuck to, to themselves very much. Um, you know, really, when I came into fashion, one of the things that I discovered, not just did I enjoy making and, you know, things and being in fashion and the clothes and, and all the aspects of the business, but the, the people themselves were a mixture of people who had often been rejected out of their own little groups and societies, people who didn't necessarily fit in, but did fit in in the world of fashion. They were creative types. They were people from all over the world. They were, you know, I, I would come across 
kids who said, oh, you know, I, I was at school and I was really into this, but no one understood what I was doing or why I was doing it because I wasn't good at sport and I wasn't good at science. You know, so there was this other side to it, too, that was alluring for me. And I found extremely exhilarating and, you know, and, and again, led to my passion. And, you know, I started off as a model in the late 80s, early 90s. When you know it was all about the sort of Glamazonian model of you know the Naomi Campbells, the Christy Turlingtons, Cindy Crawfords, and what have you, and then things changed dramatically. And I, you know, I'm a big guy; I'm six foot four, and I was you know relatively well built from playing rugby as a young man, and uh, that all worked with that look. But then, of course, the '90s came: heroin, sheep, grunge, androgyny, the waif model. And I knew I couldn't change, but I didn't want to throw away the sort of six, seven years of education within this business that I've just given myself by, by, you know, working there. So I transitioned to the other side of the camera as a photographer and I'd always enjoyed photography, but it wasn't that I'd grown up thinking I'm going to be a photographer. Well, it sounds like you're always, you know, looking out for opportunities that luck doesn't find you, you find the luck. And that was really a smart transition. Well, you've see, had a lot of financial success, it sounds too, where you had this financial independence early on, which encouraged you to quit school and pursue modeling. What would you say is your financial philosophy, Nigel, especially as somebody who's worked in an industry that is full of risk? You know, so many industries have a risky element if you're going to be entrepreneurial. And I think if you're going to work for someone else, and get a paycheck, that's fine. And that's obviously what most people do. And that's how we, we there's an element of safety to that. Uh, you know, and I enjoy being my own boss. I, you know, um, take risks, but I'm safe about the way I take risks, at least as safe as I can be, because I'm really banking on myself. First and foremost, the risk I'm taking on is me. So, it's only really up to me to work harder or put the work in or educate myself, and learn what I, about, what, about what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, um, using a camera or whether it's directing a film or whether it's writing a book. You know, there are very many different things that I have, I've been involved with, but I've always tried to be as educated on them as, as possible before getting involved. And then when I am involved, being 120% there. Um, and, and I'm like that about almost anything and everything that I do. I think also compartmentalizing is extremely important because as, as, as diversified as I am um, in the portfolio of things that we're involved with, when I'm working on any one of them, I'm extremely razor focused on that. And someone who taught me a lot about that was actually Tyra Banks. She's an incredibly um, focused individual and, and you know no matter what it is she's doing when she's doing it that's all her attention's on and I, I know that that's very important for me too when I'm with my children likewise you know the cell phones go off I'm playing with my kids I'm listening to exactly what they have to say I'm not trying to answer an email and talk to them at the same time and watch a show and you know multitask I'm not good at multitasking I'm good at doing one thing at a time but I can do many things one after the other as long as I focus and I think studies show that multitasking is not a way to get successful, that really it's about being in the moment and being conscious in the moment. Compartmentalizing is huge. Well, Nigel, when you were growing up in the UK, what would you say was your foray into finance, your experiences with money, memories of money, maybe one that really sticks out? <laughs> well, I grew up with my father being a financial consultant. So, you know, I can tell you a, a risk that I took on myself 
that that, that made a, a difference. And it was it was an interesting sort of risk in some ex, to some extent. And it was a part marketing, part um, I guess a financial risk. But you know, when I first came to New York, I wanted to set up a photo studio, and um, it was a hard thing to do. I, I'd made some money modeling, and I you know, decided to invest all of that in myself. I, I also got a loan from uh, my future father-in-law, who believed in me as well. And um, I created Studio NB, and I, I went to the meatpacking district in Manhattan, which at the time was a, a very undesirable place to be in. And we you know we found this photo studio that um, was right above a meatpacking uh, shop and you know right 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 above dizzy bagels as well in a very odd area of town in fact models would roll up the studio and assume they were in the wrong place because there'd be carcasses outside my photo studio and they'd look at you know on they'd be on their phone calling me saying i think i'm in the wrong area i'd look out and see the car and say no no, no you're there you're on the right spot um but my photo studio was very big and you know we managed to it very nicely and it really had a look and feel um, that, that made it look like we were very successful early on. And I, I realized that people were very impressionable in a, in a business that was all about impressions and about the way things looked and about selling something by making it look beautiful in a photograph, you could sell almost anything. Um, so by having this, this, this certainly this look of success straight off the bat, from an early early on, um, I, I remember clients of mine coming in and sort of saying, oh, well, we'll definitely use you as the photographer because you have this great photo studio. You're obviously successful. And it was an interesting kind of aspect of, of a risk that I took because it was very, you know, it's financially very expensive to have run and control a studio when you didn't necessarily have all the work to do it. But it was a, it was a risk that paid off. And, you know, certainly I had a, my studio for over 10 years. Now, of course, I don't need the studio anymore. And then we shoot at the finest studios um, all over the world, although that might be another business that might be worth going into. I think that's what they call fake it till you make it. <laughs> Absolutely. You just get the nice things and hopefully people will take you seriously. It's true. And that's actually why I'm working out of an office now is working from home. And part of the reason why I left was because it's nice to be able to greet clients somewhere other than Starbucks. (laughs) I remember my father, you know, was doing a deal um, when I was a kid and he, he hired a helicopter and a Rolls Royce. And I remember him talking to me about it. He said, I'm going to hire a helicopter. I'm going to fly to the person's house in the helicopter. I'm going to call him up and say, is it okay if I park my helicopter in your garden? Um, and then I, I have a Rolls Royce, which is picking me up, and he's going to take me away in this Rolls Royce. And um, my father didn't have a helicopter or a Rolls Royce. Um, and he wasn't saying that they were his, but he knew the guy would never ask. But he did secure the deal at the end of it. And the idea of my father was, was that he knew that this person was going to be impressed by these two things. Now, of course, obviously, that's not the way to do all business, but there are elements of certain ways where sometimes you have to take a risk and you have to judge what's happening and you have to make sure things are going to be right. Um, the right scenario is there so that you get the job, you, you know, and that was his way of doing it. And I, there were elements of that that I learned from certain things that he showed me. And I'm like, OK, and it's, it was basic marketing at the same time. It's true. It's basic marketing. Sometimes you make promises and then you figure out how to fulfill them. <laughs> well, you know, in photography and in, in fashion, you know, it's, it's, you know, we photograph things to look as, as fantastic as they possibly can. We take them to the most beautiful spot. We find the most flattering lighting. We, you know, all these different things, whether it's products or people. Um, and of course, you know, we, we build an image 
of a brand um, that it doesn't necessarily exist. It could be something that we've invented, you know, completely from scratch. Talk about failure, Nigel. What's a big failure that you experienced, financial failure, and what did you learn? You know, I don't know that I've had any sort of particular financial failures. I've never had a, a, a job go wrong. I've never had a client, you know, not want, not like or want the photographs I've taken. But, we, you know, there, I remember there being one time where, you know, I had certainly had a rough moment, which, you know, is actually when I was modeling. And, and I, it was because partly because I'd made this decision to continue modeling and um, my parents, you know, weren't that keen on it. And I remember flying to Italy um, to show up for a job only to find out that the hotel that I meant to be booked in hadn't been, um, uh, wasn't reserved under my name. I couldn't get hold of my agents and I didn't know what, I didn't want to call my father and say, you know, dad, I'm sort of stuck. I don't have a hotel reservation and I can't get into any of the hotels that I know of. Very expensive hotels and I really can't afford them. Can you bail me out? Um, I just, it was call it pride, call it whatever it was. I thought I can't do this. And it wasn't just that. I thought that I needed to sort it out. It was my problem. I'd caused it. I need to deal with it. So I actually went to the um, local bus station in Milan um, and I went and parked myself on a bench and slept the night. And I then washed up the next morning in a, in a sinks and went to the job. And I think it was the Armani campaign, if you can believe it. And, uh, and I went and, you know, modeled for the Armani campaign and which became a successful fashion campaign, but it also taught me a lesson to be a lot more prepared and, um, and, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's and make sure I had all my information and all the rest of it. And it was an important lesson. Well, I think that's the first time I've heard a story of failure that manifested into success literally overnight. (laughs) It was a failure, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then by, by next day it was success. I, I, for me, it's, you have to always turn everything around. This, you know, I guess you could say it was an opportunity. Yes, a quick one. What about success, Nigel? You've had so much experience working in the trenches, in fashion, in photography, as an entrepreneur, television. And all of these deals, I would imagine, require a good bit of negotiation and um, really understanding the business. What would you say is your number one so money moment? You know, we talk about success on the show. We characterize it as a so money moment. What's yours? You know, I, I think I've been, you know, I guess, very lucky as well. I mean, for sure, I, when, I, I, when I see opportunity, I grab it by the horns and, and run with it. But I think probably the the biggest moment for me was really when America's Next Top Model approached me. And I was doing well as a photographer. I'd had a few ma- you know, big breaks uh, already. Uh, I had great magazine editorials. I had you know, some very big designer names calling me, asking me to shoot for them. Um, and my career was really on the up and up. And, you know, America's Next Top Model came along. And now, of course, looking back, you'd say, well, obviously, that was a good decision. That was a great decision, you know, made you a household name, you know, broadcast your name and your face into every household, you know, across America, if not across the world, and, you know, and built your brand. But at the time, it was a risk because one top model was not a huge show after season one. It was on a small network called UPN that since went under. Um, two, the fashion industry frowned upon 
prime time and mass appeal. It was about exclusivity and elitism and what have you. And I knew that if I did this, I would be frowned upon and there would be people that wouldn't want to work with me initially because they would see me as being sort of too mass, too commercial um, and, you know, not in vogue enough, so to speak. Um, so I, I, for me, I guess it was that moment when I, I realized that this was an opportunity. The world was changing, that things weren't going to stay the same, that magazines weren't going to be the way of the future, at least not printed versions of them. Um, and that, you know, this was something where we could perhaps redefine the way business gets done. And, um, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. When I jumped on that top model uh, ship, we didn't look back. It's really a risk. I'm actually involved in a potential television show and they want to lock you in for five years and it's not a lot of money in the beginning, but you have to have a lot of faith and really believe in, I think if you don't believe in the project and you're just sort of wowed by the fact that it's a television show, it's not for you and it's not right. You have to really be passionate about it and believe in the message and the the, the plan for where they want to take the show. Otherwise, I don't know. It's a big, it's a big risk, but it sounds like you knew exactly what you were getting yourself into. It was also early days. It was, we were pioneering television, uh, certainly reality television. You know, we were, we were the first fashion show, reality television show there was on television. And, you know, there weren't many ones on, on American TV, just even outside of fashion when it came to reality TV in the early 2000s. So, you know, we, one of the things we, we lucked out on, on because of that was that we weren't signed to five-year deals. Back then, you know, we were signed to sort of two-year deals and then it was year by year. So we were able to renegotiate multiple times. It was it was different business. Now, of course, all the networks, everyone realizes how cheaply reality TV can be made, how successful the stars can become and how, you know, you can go on and all of a sudden launch ski any margarita and sell that <laughs> who so, does that yeah, yeah. Who right does that? Yeah. so oh. everyone wants in and you know all the networks want a cut of all of that money too yeah so thanks for your success nigel now we all have to suffer um well, you know. <laughs> no congratulations on all of it uh, let's end here what's a financial habit that you practice it doesn't have to be every day but it's conscious and it's regular that helps you with your with your wealth and your financial planning? I think you know, the, probably the most important thing is being very aware of your asset, being very aware of your bank account and um, really understanding what's coming in, what's going out uh, as if, you know, it's your wallet. I mean, you know, I, I never pick up my wallet and say, Oh goodness, I only have 20 bucks in it. And it's a, and it's a shock. You know, I do, I a lot of people who are very unaware of their accounts and have very little idea of, of what's coming in, what's going out, you know, where, what's the state of their 401k or their SEP IRAs or, or, or just the, the money that's coming in and out from grocery shopping. I'm extremely aware of every penny that's there and, and, and what, what's happening with all of it. And that helps me, you know, know how much I can leverage. It helps me with how much I can risk. You know, it helps me with how much I need to increase coming in or where we need to tighten that in some other areas. So for me, being very aware of, of the funds is crucial. And as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you have, like you were mentioning compartmentalizing earlier, compartmentalizing your money. So this is for business, this is for personal. That can get, that can be challenging, but you just have to be really aware of that. I, I, for me, it's absolutely vital, and I agree. I, I have, you know, probably nine or ten accounts, well, nine accounts actually. The tenth one is 
I just shot the tenth one, but the ninth. I, I divided it all up, and, and so that way it, it all makes one hundred percent sense for me. I know exactly what I'm doing. So I actually lied. My last question is this: I'm Nigel Barker, and I'm so money because because I'm Nigel Barker. <laughs> and there's no one quite like you. Thank you so much, Nigel. Wishing you continued success. Uh, the show America's Next Top Model. You, like you said, really transformed the industry, the way we perceive the industry, also changed television. Thank you for being a part of it and wishing you ongoing success. Thank you so much and all the best. If you'd like to learn more about Nigel, his website is nigelbarker.tv. You can also follow him on Twitter at Nigel Barker. And as always, if you'd like to get the transcript from this interview, the comments, as well as all that from previous interviews, just head on over to somoneypodcast.com, grab your free ebook as well while you're there. And also, if you've got a question about money, life, career, work, click on Ask Farnoosh. That's where you can send me your question directly. And I answer questions every Friday on the show. Looking forward to hearing from all of you. In the meantime, hope your day is so money. So money.